Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story back What was the inspiration on. for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? Testing. I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. <laughs> and the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Maya Mahoney will read her short story, Lolo in the Mountains, which won the 2018 Planet Earth Arts Award. Maya Mahoney is a student in the class of 2020, majoring in English and concentrating in creative writing. Lolo in the Mountains Lolo grows up in Stockton until he is seven and his sister Ceci is 12. That's when Lolo and Ceci see two shootings in one week, and Mommy and Ed decide to move the family to Oakdale. My baby saw two shootings in one week, that's how Mommy always tells it. Lolo always wants to explain that you can't really see it, you just hear it. The gang fight sprawling over the sidewalk and you're walking fast away with your hand in Ceci's and hear the bang like a firework behind you and then hear the screaming and Ceci starts running, tugging you along, your Mario Kart backpack bumping against your back and you're looking over your shoulder and you still can't see anything, just a clump of screaming kids, someone cursing, someone yelling for someone else to call 911, someone running away. It's only the next day that you see Rory trying to scrub the stain out of the sidewalk in front of his laundromat. In school, you hold your breath and feel your skin crawl as you wait for the teacher to say who died this time. Mari is crying on the playground because Vanessa told her that Vanessa's big brother is going to kill Mari's big brother. And it's all a big mess and pretty Tina Lopez gets busted for bringing a knife to school. And then there's the second shooting of the week. And that's when Mommy and Ed say, enough already, and you move. Oakdale is nicer. No shootings, no sitting with skin crawling at your desk waiting to hear who died. Oakdale's slogan is cowboy capital of the world. There's a green square park with a bathroom whose stalls don't have doors and a cheese factory and a tiny shingled cowboy museum, which Lolo's class visits every year. All around Oakdale, fields and orchards spread out, so flat and far it makes Lolo's head ache to stare down the rows. Heat hovers everywhere, and shade is a treasured thing. Mommy washes dishes, and Lolo sits at the table doing his homework, which consists of tracing his hand to make a paper turkey. It is November, and they have been in Oakdale for a few months. Long enough for Lolo to feel glaringly Latino. White people own the stores, the farms. Lolo's people work the field. My people, our people, your people, Mommy says. But Ed, the stepdad, is white. So Ed is not our people, says Lolo. Wash your mouth out, says Mommy. What? Mommy lifts him to the sink and makes him wash his mouth. The soap is pink and sweet-smelling. Lolo always thought it would be tasty, but it most definitely is not. Lolo spits suds into the sink. As long as Ed is part of our family, he is our people, says Mommy. Lolo's mouth tastes of soap for days. Lolo daydreams of having a best friend named Oscar. Oscar goes everywhere with Lolo. When they go to the second-hand store, Oscar comes with Lolo into the little curtain dressing room and tells him which outfits look cool. Who are you talking to in there, mijo? 
calls Mommy. When a bunch of white boys come rushing by on their bikes, standing up on their pedals, so close that Lolo has to jump into a bush, Oscar shakes his fist and cusses them out as Lolo sits on the curb and shakes leaves out of his shoes. Oscar fades somewhere in middle school, and Lolo is alone again. Ceci gets pregnant at 17, but finishes out senior year and gets her diploma, walking across the stage with her big belly, Mommy and Ed and Lolo all so proud they're crying. She works her way through community college, and Mommy takes care of baby Raph. Lolo is in and out of detention, which is held in a brown portable smelling of feet. Lolo's not in there for anything bad. He just doesn't do the homework, doesn't come to class. It's also boring. When he does show up, he sits in the back of his classes with a shifting group of other Latino guys, and they talk and laugh and hassle the boring-ass teachers. It's nice to have friends, but it's too big a group to really know anybody. Guys keep dropping out of school or joining the army. Lolo still doesn't have a best friend. After school, they all go chill at the Green Square Park until a white cop busts Guillermo for weed, and then they start hanging out at Lolo's house. Mommy says, here comes the hurricane, because the fridge is about to get cleaned out. Baby Raph toddles around and wails. Ed provides alcohol. Wish I had a stepdad, someone says. Lolo has a very round face. Baby cheeks, Sessie sometimes teases him. Maybe he'll never get a girl. He smiles easily, laughs easily. The guys don't know that he's often lonely, restless. The guys talk and laugh, but it never gets deep. Mommy introduces Lolo to Mexican music, pop ballads, Enrique Iglesias. Ceci introduces him to Beyonce and Adele and Taylor Swift. But it's Lolo's stepdad, Ed, who introduces Lolo to old country music. Johnny Cash, Woody Guthrie, the deep voices ringing and thundering through the decades until they reach this little living room smelling of enchiladas and Ceci's perfume. The guys like blasting rap so loud you can feel it expanding the marrow in your bones. Lolo likes that too, the dancing, the chance to grind with a girl, but when he's listening to music on his own, he puts on old country music so quiet he can hardly hear it. He doesn't know why, but this gives him the sensation that there is water on his tongue. Sometimes Lolo tells the guys he's busy, and he goes walking out alone along the side of the highway. His people are stooped over in the fields. It can't just be these two choices, to sit almost weeping from boredom in four gray walls, or to break your back picking white men's crops. Lolo ducks into the orchard. Here, the dirt is soft and brown, and the edges of the tree trunks glow in the evening light. He likes the walnut trees best, the broad skirts of pale green leaves rustling over his head. Quiet. The shadows cool and smooth and blue. There are beehives at the end of the rows, and bees drift through the air like spots of sunlight, humming. Lolo is not afraid of them. He is too happy here for fear. Lolo quits school as soon as he can. He starts bussing tables at the Unlawful Waffle, a 24-hour breakfast place with shiny floors and framed photographs of outlaws on horseback. The woman's bathroom has a sign saying Donas, and the men's says Vaqueros. Those signs hurt Lolo's soul a bit, reducing the mighty vaqueros to a bathroom joke. But the pay is pretty good, and the boss's daughter is Ellie. Intense, laughing Ellie, always wanting to talk about how can everyone work when there's nothing to work for, we're all gonna die. He tries to convince her of the realness of the world. What about music? What about wandering down the lanes of the orchard? What about, he thinks but doesn't say, talking with me?
They never convince each other, but she wins every argument. She uses such fancy words, talks so fast. The conversations late into the night in the fluorescent kitchen, Lolo working overtime with his chapped hands washing dishes, Ellie sitting on a stool by the dishwasher. Her leg always jiggles as she speaks, an infuriating tick that Lolo likes to remember when it hurts too much to think of her. How do you think about all this deep shit all the time, Ellie? He says. How do you not? What do you think about? You. I don't know who's going to win the World Series, what's going to happen in Breaking Bad, my friends. Ellie laughs her tremendous laugh. I just don't think about people. I mean, if they didn't call, it wouldn't occur to me to talk to them. I'd just be wandering around in my own brain. That's fucked up, says Lolo. You need some therapy, Chica. Ellie has a dimple that flashes in her left cheek. Soft, downy hair that grows like little sideburns. Even her zits are beautiful. This gives Lolo hope. Maybe she, looking at him, thinks his silly baby cheeks are cute. Lolo, she says very tenderly, you always know how to make me laugh. She brings him lotion for his hands, rubbing it into first one, then the other, as Lolo stands in sudden silence, trying to laugh but not finding any air. Her fingers are warm and soft and rub in slow circles over the backs of his hands. This is real, he wants to tell her. He shows her the orchard. Her shiny black boots get filmed in dust, but she doesn't complain. He points out everything. The bees, the rustle of the leaves, the sky opening up. He wants her to feel it. He wants her to be happy. He turns to her to make sure she is looking at everything, and she isn't, not at all, she's looking at him. Ellie is the first girl Lolo has sex with, her bedroom covered in punk rock posters, her parents gone for the weekend. Ellie graduates high school and gets a scholarship to go to San Jose State University. She decides to live in the dorms. So that's it, says Lolo. You're leaving? They are standing outside the unlawful waffle. It is the end of summer, and the air smells of asphalt and dust. Ellie is wearing a thin yellow dress. Yeah, I'm leaving. I'm going to college. What did you expect? Lolo doesn't know what he expected. Not this feeling like dark shutters closing over his mind. It's just an hour and a half drive, says Lolo. I looked it up. I'll come visit you on weekends. Ellie stares at the ground. Ellie, he says. I don't want to do long distance. I've thought about it. I'm going to be in a new place with new people. I don't want to be boxed in. You can find somebody who makes you happy instead of me who makes you miserable. You don't make me miserable, says Lolo, very miserably, and there it is. She's won another argument. Friends, says Ellie, looking at him, please, I don't want to lose you. Lolo tries to answer yes, but he can't seem to speak, so he nods. Lolo has worked his way up to shift manager at the unlawful waffle, but he quits. Every inch of the place reminds him of Ellie. Ed helps him get a welding apprenticeship. Welding is so much better than working at the restaurant, so much better than school. It requires intense concentration to make sure he doesn't burn himself or mess up. Too much concentration to think about Ellie. Lolo loves the fountains of orange sparks. At the end of each day, he has created something. His new friends at work get him to start steer roping. He's never ridden a horse or lassoed a steer, but he loves it immediately. It's a great sport, the urgency of the moment, entirely present in your own skin, pelting forward on the horse, the little steer dashing crazy everywhere, the rope spilling into the air in perfect loops like smoke rings and falling quiet over that unsuspecting head. 
All the other steer ropers are white boys with Trump bumper stickers on their pickup trucks, but Lolo doesn't mind. Much. He and Ellie FaceTime sometimes, but it's not the same as having her near. He can't be honest with her anymore. He can't say, you broke my heart. Bryce works with Lolo and steer ropes with him. Bryce is a very skinny white boy with acne and stooped shoulders. All the girls who come to the rodeos check him out. It takes Lolo a few weeks to figure out why. It's how Bryce walks. The rolling stroll of a cowboy straight out of the movies. The hat tilted down like he's got something to hide. An air of mystery. Though really, he's just shy. Lolo and Bryce get high on weed in the parking lot behind the rodeo one evening. Lolo plays his favorite Johnny Cash songs on his phone. They start talking about how can they know that God exists if they can't see him. Then, the revelation. We can't see music, but we know it exists. Dude, you're right, and it fills up the air all around us, just like God. Enlightenment, joy. Lolo wants to call Ellie and tell her, but doesn't. The next morning, sheepish, at work, Lolo says, Shit, dude, we can hear music. That's how we know. Shit, says Bryce, and they laugh so hard, their boss tells them they'll burn down the place if they can't keep it together. Bryce's aunt and uncle own a pack station up in the Sierras. Every spring, Bryce goes up there to work and stays all summer and fall. Once the snow gets too thick and the Forest Service comes in saying that the road will close in 30 minutes, they all come back down to Oakdale and Bryce keeps welding until the snow thaws. The packers take people who want to camp, put them on horses, pile all their stuff onto mules, and lead them up into the mountains to little lakes. In a few days, they pick up the campers and lead them out again. Bryce tells Lolo of riding all day on narrow, rocky trails by cliffs and waterfalls and pine trees to lakes clear and blue and quiet. The whole Milky Way comes out at night. Bryce's stories enchant Lolo. All he knows of nature are those stolen moments in the orchard. Uncle Kenny wants me to recruit all my rodeo friends, says Bryce. Anyone who can ride a horse well. Me, says Lolo. The mountains seem like a place of stories and songs. Nowhere ordinary Lolo could go. You, says Bryce. You're doing what, says Mommy, when Lolo tells her. There are bears up there, and fires, and lightning. You're always telling me I should move out? To an apartment, not to the wilderness. Are you just trying to become one of those white cowboys you're always hanging out with? Are you trying to forget your people? The vaqueros were cowboys, mommy, and the caballeros. I'm going to be the one to remind all those white-ass cowboys that they got it all from us. Oh yeah, says mommy. That's your big plan? She stares him down until he can't help but laugh. I just want to try it, mommy. What's the harm? If I don't like it, that's fine. I won't go next year. But what if it's the place for me and I never go and I never know? Lolo visits Ceci the night before he leaves. She lives on the far side of Oakdale now with her husband and Raph. After dinner, Lolo sits in the yard watching Raph. Ceci calls it a yard, but really, it's just pebbles. Raph scoops up handfuls of pebbles and sprints them over to the other side of the yard, his chubby legs bumping, cheeks wobbling from effort. Lolo scoops up some pebbles and lets them fall to the ground. They pitter-patter. Sounds like rain, he tells Raph. Or corn popping. Have you heard corn popping? Raph doesn't respond. He is too absorbed in rushing pebbles over to his pile. He plays with such urgency it looks like work. The next morning, Mommy gives Lolo a ridiculous amount of food for the car ride, and Ed gives him a bunch of country CDs to listen to, and they all do a corny group hug, 
and Ed starts tearing up a little bit, and then Mommy starts tearing up, and then Bryce is honking from outside, and Lolo gets the hell out of there before they can see that he's tearing up too. It's a long drive. Fields and orchards wrinkle into hills, and then straight tall trees are poking into the sky, crowding together, blocking out the light. Pine trees, Bryce says, and Lolo is grateful because he doesn't want to look stupid and ask. A few more hours, then they're turning down a dirt road, bumping along to a collection of cabins and a lodge and a corral full of horses swatting invisible flies with their tails. Cliffs of granite and pine loom up all around. White-haired fishermen stud the stream. Lolo hauls out of the car and runs his fingers through air all hazy with amber light. It's the smoke, says Bryce, but the fires shouldn't come near. Bryce's Uncle Kenny is in charge of the packers. He is soft-spoken, puts on little round glasses when he peers into the hood of a customer's broken drowned truck. He's a white guy, 40 or 50 maybe. Lolo can't tell adults' ages too well. You're an adult, Mommy would say but 18 doesn't feel much different than 17. Bryce's aunt, Kenny's wife, runs the administration of the whole place, all on paper, probably the only establishment left in California that doesn't use a computer. She is fat and sarcastic and moves with benevolent certainty, like the sunrise would wait for her if she asked. Her name is Delilah. Delilah, like the song? Yeah. Guess you get that a lot? She smirks. It's Delilah, weeks later, who convinces Lolo to study for his GED and tutors him evenings in the armchairs under the mounted deer heads, the antlers throwing crazy curving shadows over the books. All the packers wear the same thing. Wrangler jeans, plaid shirts, cowboy hats, boots with no laces. They start out the season with five of them. Lolo, Bryce, Jeff, Trent, and Rick. All five sleep in bunk beds in the same cabin which smells less like pine and more like socks with each passing week. Everyone is white except for Lolo. Jeff is 30 and snores. Trent is 16 and reads gay porn in bed. Lolo didn't know you could read it. He thought it was just an internet thing. Is Bryce straight? Trent asks Lolo. Yeah, sorry, man. Figures, Trent sighs. He's got something, you know. Mysterious. Ah, oh, everyone falls for it, says Lolo. He's just shy. Rick is 20 and wakes up for the sunrise every morning to fish before the stream fills with old men and their clunking waders. Rick snores too. Lolo stuffs a pillow over his head to block out all the snoring that fills that little room. The snoring saws its way into his dreams. An alarm goes off at five every morning. The snoring stops, and Lolo thinks this is what really wakes him up. Delilah does laundry for the five of them each week, a mountain of plaid shirts and Wrangler jeans. They stop caring which clothes belong to which person. There's no Wi-Fi at the pack station. On his day off, Lolo borrows Bryce's truck and drives down two hours to the little town of Strawberry. Country music on the radio. He can judge his mood based on how he feels about country music. Right now, the words are unimportant. The sitting in a truck, the banality, the beer, the nameless girl. It's the beat he feels. It's the strumming of the guitar that is carrying him. It's that deep voice cradling him, crooning. Another human out there is singing to him, somewhere beyond the peaks and the valleys, the rock falls and the snow. Granite out the windows, pine trees against a blue sky, the sunlight raw and endless, chafing against his eyes. He forgot his shades. 
Strawberry consists mainly of a red clabbered inn with a restaurant. He goes inside and orders a turkey sandwich. The waitress here is an old white lady with a ribbon tied in her hair and no wedding ring. Looking at her makes Lolo want to cry. The Wi-Fi here is not good, but it exists. Lolo sits on the back deck over a stream and trees whose leaves are almost white in the light. He FaceTimes Mommy. How's my caballero? she asks him. Good, good, says Lolo, smiling widely. I'm making friends. Ed pokes his head into view, eating yogurt. Lolo, are you surviving or thriving? What a pair of lovable dorks. Thriving, claro, senor, says Lolo. No bears, says Mommy. No bears. Once Lolo has finished telling them that everything is perfect, he hangs up and FaceTimes Ellie. She picks up on the third ring, and there's her face so much more beautiful than he remembered. He had made her ugly in his memory to make it hurt less, but here it is, the dimple that flashes in her left cheek, the soft downy hair that grows like little sideburns. The video's going wonky. It just shows a still image, and then every few seconds it steps to another still frame. The mouth in a different shape, the hair flying off to the side now, now the hand outstretched, a rapid photo album. If he could print them out and hang them on the wall in frames, he would. The chin tilted to the left now, or the forehead crinkled. Now she's laughing. Lolo, have you heard a word I said? He blames the audio connection. Ellie tells him about her classes, and he smiles and tells her about the other packers, and knows that one day he will fall in love with someone else and be happy, but probably he will never stop loving her too. Very probably, whenever he sees her face for the rest of his life, he will feel this way. The others haze Lolo and Rick, whose first year it is too, and make them sleep outside on a granite slab with no sleeping bags, having told them about grizzly bears and coyotes and flesh-eating vampire mosquitoes. Lolo and Rick lie on the granite, a yard apart. The whole Milky Way spangles out above them. Lolo wants to ask Rick to cuddle for warmth, but he doesn't want to sound gay. He wants to ask Rick to talk about something, anything, but silence is falling gray all over them like forest fire ash. Every shifting stick is a grizzly bear or a coyote. Mosquitoes lurk in clouds around Lolo's face and bite his forehead. He curls into a ball on the granite and hides his face. They bite his knees. His toes have gone numb. He cries silently and imagines that the tears are freezing. It's the sound of Rick's snoring that builds a roof and walls around Lolo and finally lets him fall asleep. Bryce is red-faced and apologetic the next morning as Lolo and Rick stagger, grimy and exhausted, into the cabin. They did it to me when I started, Bryce says, and Lolo punches Bryce's shoulder and then punches Rick's shoulder and then they're all punching each other's shoulders and grinning. Lolo's first pack trip and he's riding Lazy Boy, who loves to eat. Lolo has to keep yanking the horse's head away from the foliage and kicking him to get him going. Bryce rides all the way in front with his hat tilted down, and behind Bryce are the customers, two middle-aged botanists from Oregon who pluck leaves off the trees and show them to Bryce and Lolo. Lodgepole, Ponderosa, Juniper. If you don't know their names, it's all just a green blur, says the man. But if you know them, they become your friends, says the woman. Lolo likes how they speak stepping off each other's sentences. The first few hours are glorious. Rushing white rivers, wild flowers, glittering lakes. This place makes my heart sing, Lolo thinks. 
but a few hours later, his heart's lyrics consist primarily of the word fuck. Lulu's done tons of writing for rodeo, but never anything like this. Never five hours in a row on a horse whose legs keep skittering on rocks inches from a cliff edge. Never five hours of having to stare at the swinging butt of the horse in front, watching the tail curve up in an arch as it farts or the legs widen as it jerks to a stop to let out a hot stream of urine, or the shitting-while-walking scenario, the goopy clods falling just in time for a lazy boy to step on them. Lolo didn't lengthen the stirrups enough, so his knees are in pain. He has to turn it round constantly to make sure the mules haven't gotten their stupid-ass selves stuck in a crevice or fallen off a cliff. Bryce and Lolo drop the botanists off at the campsite, unload the mules, and mount the horses to ride back. Bryce takes charge of half the mules. They go faster when they're heading home, says Bryce. It should only take four hours. Great, lies Lolo. Dude, your face right now, says Bryce, and starts laughing. Bryce laughs so hard he almost falls off the horse. Rides and rides, cliffs and mountains, lodgepole and ponderosa and juniper, a marmot that streaks across the rock. One day, the fire rangers call to tell them all to pack up and evacuate. The fires are getting close. It's a false alarm. Rides and rides, cliffs and mountains, horses' butts swinging, saddles, snoring, the little cabin. A hot day, so hot that flies cluster thick in the black nostrils of horses, seeking moisture. The packers strip down to their boxers and wade into the street. The water is icy, but only comes up to their knees. They lower themselves down in push-up position until they are submerged. The water closes over, around, registering more as pain than cold, and Lolo bursts out, swearing, triumphant, entirely numb, the world drenched in clarity. The outlines of everything are crisp, like someone has traced over them in silver pencil. Bryce is lying on a slab of granite, trying to leach some of its warmth. Rick is taking pictures for his Instagram. Trent is yelping and doing jumping jacks. Jeff has remembered a towel. Lolo lies next to Bryce on the granite. The stone is gritty and warm and imprints little bits of dirt into his skin. Fucking freezing, right? says Bryce. Lolo's teeth are chattering. Lolo's teeth are still chattering. It hurts to breathe all the way in. Like his chest is constricted. He used to feel like this a lot, he realizes. He used to feel like this whenever he thought about Ellie. But already the warmth of the stone is seeping in. Already the tightness is loosening. Lolo is the only packer who isn't white until Caleb comes at the beginning of July. Caleb is black. He grew up in the South Bronx. He snores too. You guys are actual cowboys, Caleb keeps saying. It's like the Wild West. And suddenly Lolo is on the inside looking out at the city boy noob from way out east. Lolo grew up with steer roping and Johnny Cash. He's worn Wrangler jeans his whole life. He belongs. On their day off, Caleb and Lolo take Lazy Boy and Flash and go riding out to Reservoir Lake. The air is soupy with smoke today, and the dust that the horses kick up comes roiling in clouds. It coats the inside of Lolo's nostrils and crusts the corners of his eyes, but he is used to it by now and doesn't mind. Lolo rides upright, his hips moving with Lazy Boy, like they are one, the warmth and the solidity of the horse between his thighs, the reins held loosely in one hand, Caleb tight-legged, clinging to Flash's saddle horn with two hands. They sit over the blue and the glitter and spit dip into the smoky sunshine. I'm glad you're here, says Lolo, 
It's been fucking with me to not have anyone to complain to about Trump. What is he fucking thinking, says Caleb. He doesn't think at all. If I had known all these guys were going to be Trump supporters, I wouldn't have left the Bronx. Really? And let them have all this? says Lolo. He spreads his arms out. Below them, light skates over the surface of the lake in diamonds. Behind the lake are mountains, and behind those mountains are bluer mountains and grayer. Clouds are starting to collect themselves on the edge of the sky, dragging beneath them great puddles of shadow. They stole it anyway, we gotta take it back. We're not Indians, says Caleb. True, says Lolo, but you know what I mean. Bryce has a Trump bumper sticker, says Caleb. I know, says Lolo, pretty fucked. But he's like your best friend. I guess I take what I can get, says Lolo. There aren't huge numbers of people begging for the position. Caleb laughs. On the ride back, a storm rolls through. Neither of them remembered raincoats. The drops come fast and hard and cold, peppering their skin through their shirts. Lightning flashes and the horses move restlessly. Then comes the crash of thunder. Shit, dude, we have to get down from the ridge, calls Lolo. They go trotting down the trail as fast as they dare, the horse's feet slipping on the slick stone. Is this how he dies? Caleb bounces haphazardly in the saddle. Lolo stands up in his stirrups. He can feel his own heartbeat, jerky, electrical. His hands are pink and clenched with cold. The rain turns to hail that pelts indiscriminately on the pine trees and lazy boy's neck. It's fucking hailing, Caleb calls. They are both grinning madly. This is the glory moment, the one worthy of an old country song. Hail skittering on the dirt, ringing on the granite, melting on Lolo like he is part of it all. Hi, Maya. Hi, Mark. Thank you for being on this episode of Off the Page. Um, this is really exciting because not only are you a former student of mine, but in fact, you worked on this story in English 90, um, uh, which, which I taught. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about the inspiration for the story and, and how you came to write it? Right. Well, I went on a camping trip with my family up in the Sierras last summer and we were with the family friends and we had a pack guide helping us carry our stuff up to this lake where we were going to camp. And it was a very long, rather frightening ride on horseback in which I got to talk with this young man who was about my age and had a very different life experience than me. And he told me a couple intriguing snippets about how he grew up in Oakdale and did steer roping and all these things I had never really heard of before. And after that, I remembered him and this beautiful place I had been camping and kind of wanted to write a story that imagined a more full version of what a life of somebody like him might be. And was it challenging to write about a life that you weren't familiar with, that, you know, the firsthand, to write about pack guides, steer roping, welding, <laughs> Oakdale? I mean, was, how, how did you find your way sort of into the character? Yeah, um, I guess it, it was challenging. I felt some some qualms about how I could accurately write a story about something so far from my own experience. So I really focused on things that were part of my experience. Um, love of nature, um, definitely <laughs> Lowe's relationship with Ellie is modeled off of similar things that have happened in my own life. So just focusing on things where I could put myself into his own shoes. 
Sure, sure. Um, and something else that is really notable about, notable about the story, which um, I remember being struck by in the earlier version that I saw in Workshop, is that you you have a very long clock on the story. You cover many, many years um, in this guy's life. Um, do you know from the beginning that that's how you want it? Is, is that, did you know from the beginning that that was the form you wanted for the story? Um, and was that challenging to try to encompass so many years in 15 pages or less? That's a good question. I think I didn't know from the beginning. I thought that I would just first get to know Lolo as a character by, for myself, brainstorming things that happened in his childhood, and then the whole story would take place in the mountains. But after I'd written these things from his childhood, I thought, you know what, these are actually kind of essential, and I want the reader to see them too. To me, I think that the story feels like it's about this guy finding his place in the world, and in order to understand how he does that, we sort of need to see him as a child, as a teenager, exploring these different environments where he always feels kind of askew. Um, but I also just know from a craft standpoint how difficult it is to to pull that off, to make these these snippets feel sufficient and embodied. And I think your story does a wonderful job of that. Um, were there other works that you turned to for inspiration or writers that you looked to who had made similar moves? Um, yeah, or is it just all you? <laughs> Definitely not all me. I do remember you recommended me this beautiful Elizabeth Talent story to read. Um, Mendocino Fire. Mendocino Fire. <laughs> Great story. Great story. Everyone should read it. And she handles time in a really uh, impressive way where she can take a really large spans of time and compress it and make it still feel really vivid by just having these like micro scenes. Yeah, and I think you do a terrific job of um, writing these very compressed sort of imagistic moments that, that stand in for much bigger things. Like, I'm impressed by how quickly Lolo falls in love with Ellie. Like, that's a paragraph in the story where he goes from starting to work there to boom, he's in love with her. Um, or later in the story, the passage that has the refrain of um, rides and cliffs or rides and rides... Um, cliffs and um, cliffs and mountains um, and and how those stand in for like much bigger sort of swaths of time also you know in terms of like the plot of the story I feel like you understand the plot of the story when you get sort of to the end but 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 while you're going through it it might just seem like this is a guy's life and then he does this and he does that um was that a challenge for you to write something that had sort of a, I guess, a loose, a looser sort of structure? Um. That was a challenge. I think I'm used to reading more like novels that generally have more of a, a, a plot arc. And so trying to tease out what could be themes that I could make carry through the story to make it feel a little bit more like a coherent story was was tricky. <laughs> um and I think uh, you helped me in workshop try to make Lolo have more agency and make him feel like he wasn't just bumping along the path of his life, but was making decisions that were taking him places. And I think that that helped. And what 
what role do you see uh, Caleb playing in the story? Because he, he enters pretty late in the game, but the story ends with him and Lolo together. Um, what, what was his sort of importance for you as a character? Right. I, I feel like Caleb is the person with whom Lolo finally feels at home because he's also low-income, a person of color who feels not necessarily invited into this world of the cowboy culture, but he, like Lolo, is also sort of enchanted by the natural beauty of the world. So I feel like having an ally in that respect, Lolo feels like he can finally feel a part of this mountain landscape. Was it a challenge writing um, from the point of view of a dude? (laughs) Um, uh, And how did you sort of navigate that? It was a challenge. Um, I asked my male friends to read the story, <laughs> and I I asked for their advice if it sounded dude-like enough. <laughs> that was helpful. <laughs> um, uh, so I want to ask about something I remember us talking about a lot, not just you and me, but like the whole class talking about in that English 90 that we had together. And I don't know if you remember this, but I remember talking a lot about uh, trying to represent emotion in writing and we i think we were talking a lot about mary gateskill and how she like was able to come up with these ways of phrasing really kind of elusive ineffable feelings and i i see a lot of that in this story when you describe the um lolo's response to country music as feeling like water on his tongue or um the the dark shutters closing in his mind when ellie tells him she's going to college um do you do you have do you have you know any sense of how that how that happens i think that is an aspect of writing that comes really naturally to me i think my brain kind of thinks metaphorically a lot or um those were sensations that that i have had in similar situations and i don't know why my brain has made those sort of metaphors to try to encapsulate how i'm feeling but like, yeah. <laughs> um, so let's like maybe take a step back and just talk a little bit about how you found yourself in writing or how, do you, how you found your way to writing in the first place. Because I know you've taken a number of writing classes here at Stanford. Um, and sort of what, what began that? What, what began that, that journey? That journey, yes. Well, I always really loved reading. And in middle school, I decided I wanted to write like a, um, like a middle school age like adventure story. So I, I worked in secret and I wrote this whole novel and then I showed it to my best friends. And it was just like such an accomplishment and such a wonderful feeling. Now looking back on that, I'm like, well, that's, that's cute. Not really where I'm at now, but, (laughs) and then I was like, wow, this is something I really love. And like, I want to do more of and I read another novel in high school and was like yeah like I love this I love how it helps me interpret the world and make good things out of hard times and yeah so I just want to keep writing whatever I do and who are some writers that have been really impactful for you Mm, um in terms of like young adult and children's literature, which is a lot of what I write. I really love Philip Pullman, who wrote the um, the Golden Compass books. His like prose is excellent, and his plots are great, and that's wonderful. 
And in terms of more more adult fiction, I really love uh, James Baldwin, Virginia Woolf. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the last thing I want to ask you is uh, another thing I really remember from our English 90 is that you were really articulate about a certain kind of warmth and sincerity in fiction, as opposed to maybe a more default literary fiction mode of darkness and despair. And I remember us reading the two Raymond Carver stories, The Bath and A Small Good Thing, A Small Good Thing being the more like life affirming one. And you were really um, uh, impassioned in your <laughs> in your advocacy for that version. And I just wonder um, if you want to say anything about that, about well, what it is sort of that you really value in fiction and maybe what what you hope to capture in your own writing. I feel like fiction has the potential to find beauty and meaning and can be really wonderful and comforting and affirming. And that doesn't mean that it always has to have a happy ending or that things are going to go well for the characters. But I feel like fiction can leave you with some sort of hope and feeling of agency in the world and that it can be really powerful that way. And when I see that a lot of literary fiction is like very bleak and despairing, I'm like, ooh, could we maybe have beautifully written fiction that still gives its readers a sense that they can change things for the better in the world? And I think the answer is yes. Thank you so much, Maya, for appearing on Off the Page. Thank you so much, Mark. This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablatza, and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.